get ready to pray that I would encourage you to come back tonight at 7 p.m. Uh, let me also encourage you, if you come back tonight at 7 p.m., let me also encourage you in this way. Um, as we think about those in the midst of our church who are suffering, or those who are struggling with different illnesses, let me encourage you in this way. Um, why don't we think about fasting one meal this week? Let us set aside one meal this week, if you are able, to fast and pray for those who are ill, for those who are suffering, um, for their healing, and for their hope in the gospel. Let me just encourage you in that way. Um, if you're not able to do that, I understand. Um, and if you are able, please do that. But let's pray. Father in heaven, as we come to your throne room of grace, Father, we are humbled that you allow us in. As your children, you, you welcome us into your throne room. And Father, you ask us to cast all of our cares upon you. So, Father, it's with a heavy heart that we come and we, we cast our cares upon you. Father, we, we think about our friend, a member of our family, Gary Rockman, Father, as he is uh, in the hospital um, overcoming or trying to overcome complications from COVID and viral pneumonia. And, and Father, our hearts just pray for, for Gary and for Kathy. Father, we just pray for healing. Father, we pray that the doctors would know how to treat him. And Father, we pray that he would be sent home so that he can continue to go through uh, chemotherapy. Um, and Father, we just pray, Lord, that you would bring healing to him. And Father, our hearts are heavy for those in our midst who have cancer. Father, our hearts cry out for John Harvett, for Cindy Hemberg, for Ava Heidi, for Catherine Ritter. Father, cancer is an ugly thing. And Father, we pray that you would take it away. And Father, whether you do that through chemotherapy or the doctors or surgery, Father, we don't care. We just ask that you would take it away, whether it is through the instrumentality of physicians or whether it is through a miracle. Father, we pray, Lord, that you would heal our brothers and sisters. Father, we pray, Lord, that in the midst of these treatments, Father, that they would not lose hope and be discouraged. Father, we pray that the hope of Jesus would rule and reign in their hearts and minds. Father, we continue to pray for Vaughn Heck, and Father, we, the doctors don't know, and the uncertainty can be very unsettling. And so, Father, we ask, Lord, that you would give him a diagnosis and that the doctors would know how to treat him and that we would see this young one, this dear one, restored to health. And Father, for Elaine Jones, who is continuing to have um, aphasia, Father, we pray, Lord, that you would be merciful to her. Father, we love her deeply. And Father, we pray that your mercy and grace would be made evident to her every day. And for her caregiver and her friend, Liz, Father, we pray, Lord, that in the midst of going to bury her mother this week in New York, that you would give great comfort and peace to her. Father, we pray, Lord, that her, her family and would be a source of comfort and strength. And Father, I pray, Lord, that as she reads, as Liz reads your word, Father, as we read your word, we would find words of comfort and hope and that you would build us up. And, and Holy Spirit, would you please go forward and bring great comfort to those who are afflicted and struggling. Father, we think about our, our homes. We think about our children. Father, we pray that our children would know you. That they would not wander in the wilderness of the world thinking that they could satisfy their deepest longings with what the world promises. But Father, we pray, Lord, that our homes would be nurseries for heaven that our homes would be placeful of gospel growth, that our children would walk with you 
So, Father, we pray, Lord, for our children who have seemingly wandered away. We pray that you would draw them back. Father, for those who are walking with you, we pray that they would be steadfast in their faith to you. Father, as students get ready to come to KU, but also as we send students out, Father, we think about those students who are headed all over the place, whether it's Arkansas or Appalachian State or wherever it might be. Father, we pray, Lord, that as they go to college, that they would find Christians that would encourage their hearts, that they would find churches where the gospel is proclaimed. And Father, we pray within our own community that you would continue to raise up churches that would proclaim the gospel. Father, for those that, pr- that proclaim the gospel faithfully, we pray, Lord, that they would grow and flourish. Father, for churches that do not proclaim your gospel, we pray that you would shut their doors. You would either reform their message and draw them to you, or you would close the doors of churches that do not proclaim Jesus as Lord and Savior and believe in the resurrection. Father, we pray, Lord, that as a church that we would be about proclaiming your message and sending forth those who would proclaim your message. Father, we pray, Lord, that as they go forth and as they scatter seeds, Father, that those seeds would find fertile soil. Father, we think about our missionaries around the world, and Father, we pray, Lord, that you would bless them this day as they celebrate um, reunion with you, as they celebrate reconciliation found only in Jesus. And Father, as we think upon the gospel message where you have been redeeming lost sinners to yourself. Father, I pray, Lord, that we would praise you for all that you have done. And Father, we pray, Lord, that our missionaries would be encouraged. Father, I think about Brad Supple, Father, as he goes to some of the the hardest places in the world to proclaim your name. Father, would you protect him? But Father, would you give us and him a theology of risk? Risk for the sake of the gospel. Risk for the sake of lost people thinking more about others than we do about ourselves. Father, help us. Help us to be courageous and help us to know that you walk with us and you are with us forever. And Father, we pray, Lord, that as a church that we would pray for those in our midst. We would pray for our leaders. Father, we we pray for our president, Joe Biden. Father, we pray, Lord, that you would give him wisdom, that you would surround him with, with people who will point him in the direction of righteousness. Father, we pray that his ways would be your ways and that you would work great faith and courage within him. Father, help us. Help us, Lord, to pray more for our leaders than we complain about them. Convict us, Father, of that sin of complaining and grumbling. And Father, we pray, Lord, that as a church, that we would be a city on a hill, that we would be the salt that you have called us to be, that we would take the name of Jesus forward in our neighborhoods, in our homes, and all over Douglas County. Father, help us. And Father, as we think about the tithes and offerings and the way that you have blessed us and been generous to us, Father, I pray, Lord, that we would return your generosity with the generosity of our own. That we would give because we love. We would give because we want to see your name expanded. We would give because we love you. So, Father, bless the tithes and offerings and bless us, Father. Save us. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. The children are dismissed for Children's Church. If you're in the aisleways, be careful. You might get run over if the children go. The rest of us, please turn in your Bibles to Psalm 14. We're in Psalm 14 today. It's funny, this is the first time I think we've done consecutive psalms, um, and I just kind of picked it as we think about Psalm 14. 
What's interesting about Psalm 14, as we come to it, is uh, Psalm 14 is actually quoted um, almost verbatim within Psalm 53. Uh, The fool says in his heart, there is no God. If you go to Psalm 53, you'll see that almost, um, as a matter of fact, if you look at Psalm 14, you'll notice that there's seven verses. In Psalm 53, there are six verses. Five of those verses are verbatim what you see between Psalm 53 and Psalm 14. I don't know if there was like some CCLI copyright issues or infringement, you know, in the Old Testament or if we had problems there. Uh, But you also see the Apostle Paul also speaking about um, Psalm 14 or Psalm 53, and he's speaking about it in Romans 3. And so as we jump into this today, know that um, here's here's the, um, the, the, the freebie. If you memorize the first three chap- three verses of Psalm 14, you are actually memorizing nine verses within the Bible. You'll actually be memorizing Psalm 53, verses 1 through 3, as well as Romans 3, uh, verses 10 through 12. So it's like a free, you know, it's, it's just a blessing. So if you challenge your children to memorize Scripture, and I'm glad all the children are gone because they would obviously take advantage of this. Uh, they would say, yes, I'm going to memorize nine verses this summer. And they would probably just memorize Psalm 14, verses 1 through 3. Uh, but if they did that, then they would probably be in the avenue of a fool, which is what we're talking about in Psalm 14. So, um, having, having said that by way of introduction, let me read for you Psalm 14. To the choir master of David, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. Have they no knowledge, all the evildoers who eat up my people as they eat bread and do not call upon the Lord? There they are in great terror. For God is with the generation of the righteous. You would shame the plans of the poor, but the Lord is his refuge. Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion when the Lord restores the fortunes of his people. Let Jacob rejoice. Let Israel be glad. And we all say, the grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. So here's what we have. The fool says in his heart, There is no God. Actually, what the fool says, um, he actually cries out. The the English there is in the first verse is not really there. Uh, If you're reading the Hebrew, it actually says, the fool says in his heart, no God. No God. I don't want to be under any accountability. I don't recognize um, Elohim as the actual word for God. I don't recognize there being a judge. I don't recognize myself being underneath the accountability of anyone. The fool, the fool says in his heart. Actually, that word fool there is actually the term uh, Nabal, the Hebrew term Nabal. And we actually read about a man whose name was Nabal in 1 Samuel 25. He was the husband of Abigail when David is going through after the death of Samuel. And David is looking for um, some food for his men as he is um, on the run from King Saul. And he finds and he runs into Nabal and Abigail. And Nabal is a fool. Now you got to, man, that's a rough name to go with, isn't it? You're like, are there any fools here? Oh yeah, that's my name. My mom and dad gave me that, right? Like Nabal. He's the fool who would not help David. And rather, uh, Abigail goes and prevents David from shedding innocent blood. 
And then about 10 days later, Nabal dies, his heart withered up inside of him, and then David took Abigail as one of his wives. But the word fool is used in a couple different ways. Sometimes in the book of Proverbs, um, the word fool is used as one who is a simpleton, one who does not understand things, one who needs to be taught, uh, a youth, for example. Uh, when we were um, back in Virginia and my oldest, older son, Benjamin, and because he's not here, I can talk about him uh, at least a little bit. I remember when he was 16 and, and, you know, I don't know how 16-year-old males actually ever make it to adulthood uh, because they just continually do things that, that might not be considered wise. Um, and there would be sometimes in the midst of Benjamin speaking to me, he would say something and I would say, son, son. I say, son, are, are, you, are you a boy? are you male? And he goes, yes. And I said, how old are you? 16. And what does that make you? A fool. And I'm like, yes, that's exactly, that was our catechism that we were working through, right? (laughs) That we added to the catechism there. And it wasn't because, um, it was because he needed to be instructed in the midst of these things, right? As a matter of fact, in the South, uh, with with Simpleton, we would say something like, in the South, uh, even South of Virginia, you would say something like, oh, Benjamin, bless his heart. (laughs) Bless his heart. He just doesn't know any better, right? That's, what Nab- that's not what Nabal is talking about right here. The term Nabal here is someone who knows better but continues to do that thing. Someone who knows that there is a God, but they, they lie to themselves, they lie to their heart, and they say, no, there is no God. And, and what we find is, you know, let me grab my, my notes here. As we think about this, a fool says in his heart, there is no God. And yet, as we think about this idea of the fool saying in his heart, again, the fool knows that there is a God, and yet he lies to himself in the midst of his heart. He says, no, I don't want to be bound by someone who will hold me accountable for my actions. I don't want to think that I am not a law unto myself. We see this, actually, in the book of Romans, and we're going to spend some time in the book of Romans today. If you have your Bibles, turn over to Romans chapter 1. I'm going to show you this. Um, Romans chapter 1 speaks about this. I had, had someone tell me, and I can't remember where this quote comes from, so I'll just attribute it to myself, okay? It's that there are no atheists, there are only suppressed theists, as it were. Again, I didn't make that up, I'm just, you know. But here's what we see. In verse 18 of Romans chapter 1, it says this, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened, i.e., they are fools. It is clear that God, in the midst of his creation, is, is a grand architect. And yet what they have done is they have suppressed the knowledge of God and said, no, this must be random. This cannot be true. 
And yet, they see through the invisible attributes, through creation, and we would call that general revelation, the people of God were, they have suppressed the truth and unrighteousness. And I'm here to tell you that creation sings of the glory and architecture of God. It sings. Let me give you an example. Let me give you an example of how creation sings. Um, now, let, 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 me, let me just, I was a biology major in college uh, at James Madison University. Um, it's, it really is the best college in Virginia, uh, so, you know, despite what people from Charlottesville might say. Um, but one of the things that we learned, and one of the things that, you know, when, when kids go to school or you go to college and you go to biology class, let, let me explain the glories of science. Because when you stand and, and you, like, let me just give you this. Like, when you think about it, I'm going to throw out a couple words to you. These are not theological terms. These are biological terms. Mitosis and meiosis. Those sing the glory of God. When you look at cellular reproduction, whether it is asexual within mitosis or it is, you know, a, a diploid cell becoming a haploid cell in meiosis, and you run through prophase, metaphase, anaphase, and telophase. They sing the glory of God. As a matter of fact, when I was going through, whether it was um, bi any biology class I had, any chemistry class that I had, you know, what I would find is that my professors uh, were not atheists. Now, I'm not saying that they were Christians, but what they, I would find is that they were agnostic, saying there's so much complexity, there's so much diversity within just the single cell. I mean, just when you look at one of the organelles like mitochondria, you look at that and you go, this just screams and sings out of the glorious architecture of one who did design something. And as you look at these things, let me just encourage you, as you go to school, you know, as your children go to school, encourage them that when they're in science, they are actually, you know, seeing an apologetic for the attributes of God in his architecture. I mean, it is glorious. And yet, sometimes kids get bored when you say prophase, metaphase, anaphase, and telophase. <laughs> I don't understand it. Like, I don't understand how you guys cannot get up and just say, I have not heard one amen from prophase, metaphase, antiphase, telephase. <laughs> Nothing. You guys, I mean, come on now. I mean, like, when we look at this, how, let me give you another example. You pick up a blade of grass. You pick up a blade of grass, and then you put that blade of grass underneath a microscope, and you look at the individual cells, and you begin to think about the cell membrane and the cell wall, and you begin to look at all that is going on in a single blade of grass. The complexity of that which we cut once or twice, you know, it all depends on how rain's going, right? All right, about this. You know, you can pick up a twig without any leaves on it. And you can take that one twig and you can determine what plant it is with no leaves on that one piece of wood. And you go, because of the complexity of the whirling of the vascular bundle scar. I mean, again, I'm, getting, I'm geeking out in science here for a second, but there's something to be said for the science that we see. There's something beautiful. As a matter of fact, but we become... Um, 
we, we become ignorant of it because we see it all the time. And if you go outside, like here, here's, here's, a, um, here's a way that you can apply the sermon today. When you go home, observe the beauty of the flowers and the grasses and the trees. Observe, I mean, even sing, this is my father's world. When various birds will sing and you know which birds they are because of the notes that their voices, you know, sing. I mean, all of those things. I mean, how many of you are just uh, overwhelmed by all the cicadas in the, in the summertime right now? Like you go outside and that is the chorus of creation singing about the glory of God. And yet, the fool will say in his heart, there is no God. There is no God. Let me keep saying it in this way. Um, now, beyond creation, um, I love what, um, this book is uh, The Reason for God uh, by Tim Keller. And he, he, he is, I'm going to quote a, a story that he has, you know, about morality. Because some people will say, well, you know, like, let, let's, let's not talk about absolute morality. I, I don't want to talk about absolute morality. And part of the reason I don't believe in a God is because I don't believe in a morality that is objective. Keller says this, um, again, Keller in, in planting a church in Manhattan. He says this, in, in many cases, I have to put on my philosophy professor hat in order to be a good pastor to people. He says, a young couple once came to me for some spiritual direction. They didn't believe in much of anything, right? Which is interesting that they would go to Tim Keller to like, give them some guidance, which I, I appreciate, right? So this, this young couple comes to Tim Keller, and they didn't believe in much of anything. And they said, how could they begin to figure out if there was even really a God at all? And I asked them, Tim Keller asked them to, asked them to tell me about something they felt was really, really wrong. And the woman immediately spoke out against practices that marginalized women. And, and let me just read it. He said, Tim Keller says, I, I said, I agreed with her fully since I was a Christian who believed God made all human beings, but I was curious why she thought it was wrong. She responded, women are human beings and human beings have rights. It is wrong to trample on someone's rights. And I asked her how she knew that. Puzzled, she said, everyone knows it is wrong to violate the rights of someone. I said, most people in the world don't know that. They don't have a Western view of human rights. Imagine if someone said to you, everyone knows that women are inferior. You'd say, that's not an argument, it's just an assertion. And you'd be right. So let's start again. If there is no God, as you believe, and everyone has just evolved from animals, why would it be wrong to trample on someone's rights? Her husband responded, yes, it is true we are just bigger-brained animals, but I'd say animals have rights too. You shouldn't trample on their rights either. I asked whether he held animals guilty for violating the rights of other animals if the stronger ones are the eight, the weaker ones. And he says, no, I couldn't do that. So he only held human beings guilty if they trampled on the weak. Yes. Why this double standard, I asked. Why did the couple insist that human beings had to be different from animals so that they were not allowed to act as was natural to the rest of the animal world? Why did the couple keep insisting that, that humans had this great, unique, individual dignity and worth? Why did they believe in human rights? I don't know, the women said. I guess they're just there. That's all. Now, what that points to is this idea of an absolute moral right and wrong. We get that, right? 
Like, for example, let me say, um, in terms of, you know, when we think about moral relativism, you know, Michael Kruger, uh, in, in a book that he wrote uh, about surviving religion 101, letters to Christian students about keeping faith in college, he says this about most of your friends. And so he's writing to you know, upcoming college students or students who are already in college, and he says this. He says, most of your friends are both moral relativists and moral absolutists at the same time. For some behaviors, they are one. For other behaviors, they are the other. For example, they pick and choose. So when it comes to environmentalism and the treatment of refugees, they abandon moral relativism and act as if there are moral absolutes after all. But when it comes to their sexual behavior, they suddenly become moral relativists, again, insistent that morality is determined by each person and culture, and they want to have it both ways. We see that within our culture. We want to have it both ways. We want to be moral objectivist when we see something that is clearly wrong. Let me give you an example. If I were to invite you, let's just pretend, for example, I have a pool, right? If, if you came over to my house at a pool party, and, and we're in it, having a pool party, and there's, um, I don't know, maybe an 18-month, 24-month-old child, and that child falls into the pool, I would hope that every person here would jump in to save that child, right? Now, if you wouldn't jump in to save that child, don't come to any of my pool parties, okay? I would hope that you would jump in to save the life of this 18 to 24-month-old child, even if it wasn't your child, because you know that that is the right thing to do. Why is it the right thing to do? Why is it the right thing to do? As opposed to saying that child falls in and you look at that child and you go, yep, natural selection. That's what happened right there. No, you would jump in to save that child. The, the fact that you have this, this morality within you, this sense of wrong and right within you, points to you being created in the image of God. It dispels what the fool says in his heart when he says, there is no God. So whether it is from creation or whether it is from morality, we see that God rules and reigns. And what the fool says, and again in Psalm 14, is he says in his heart, he says in his heart, no God, no God. He cries out. We see it again in, in Psalm 53, and we see it again in Paul's playlist of sin in Romans chapter 3. But what happens? You see, what happens is a man or a woman without accountability will do abominable things. Look at what we end up being when there is no accountability. In verse 1, it says this, when someone says, when a fool, a Nabal, says in his heart, no God, they are corrupt, they do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. We see this, the taking of innocent lives, the abuse of the poor, the subjugation of someone who looks different than us or is new to our area or country, who cannot speak the language. We see this. We see that people are taken advantage of. They do abominable things, fraud, lying, cheating, slavery. You have people who don't think that there is any accountability for their actions 
will do abominable things. Galatians chapter 5 says, For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh, for these are opposed to each other. But if you are led by the spirit, then you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Now think about this. The works of the flesh are evident. The abominable things that people will do, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. He doesn't even give an exhaustive list. He just says, and things like these. When someone doesn't believe that there is a God, when someone has lied to their heart, when someone says there is no accountability in the midst of my actions, I can do whatever I want and I'll get, a, I'll get away with whatever I want. And they will do abominable practices. That is wickedness. As a matter of fact, we see this um, playing itself out. And, and, and the, Paul says this in the book of Romans. If you're in Romans, go back to Romans chapter 3. Because you look around and you go, man, this is, we're in a corrupt generation. And yet that long list of things that I've I, I read, whether it's, you know, maybe, maybe you don't struggle with sexual immorality, but maybe you do. Maybe you don't struggle with sorcery, but you might struggle with jealousy. Or you might struggle with envy. Or you might struggle with drunkenness. Or rivalries or strife. We struggle with these things. So the Lord looks down from the heaven on the children of man. So the Lord now makes a, a proclamation or a declaration about uh, our anthropology. And Romans chapter 3, verses 10 through 12, is Paul's playlist of the book of Psalms. Now, after reading this, because again, Paul quotes about who we are from Psalm 14, which is also Psalm 53, Psalm 5, Psalm 140, Psalm 107, and then Proverbs. Um, I think when I read this, I'm like, I don't ever want to get a playlist from Paul again. I don't ever want him to do a mixtape about anything theological, because it just seems really, really sad as it re relates to the book of Psalms. Notice what it says, and again, he's quoting this. He says, you know, what then, are Jews any better off? Not at all, for we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin, as it is written. That, again, he's talking about the sinfulness of man. None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asp is under the lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. And their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. No fear of God before their eyes. From Psalm 36, verse 1. What we find is that Paul is saying that all have sinned. He gets to it later. You know, this is the preface to what Martin Luther would say is the most important paragraph in all of Scripture. Luther would say the greatest chapter is Romans 8, but the greatest paragraph is Romans chapter 3, verses 21 through 26. But we're not there yet. The other thing a fool says in his heart when he says that there is no God, he also convinces himself that he's a good person <laughs> or that there will be no accountability for their actions if they're a bad person. That's what fools do. 
Now, if we continue reading Psalm 14, they have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. Well, the problem with that is all of a sudden we, we read, you know, in verse 1 of Psalm 14, the fool says in his heart, no God. Well, we go, well, that's not us. Like, we're in church, right? Like, I showed up on time. I mean, those of you in the first five rows are like, I'm sitting in the first five rows. You know, like, look at how holy I am, right? You know, as you think about that, but as we read later in Psalm 14, it says, no, no one has understood. Nobody is seeking after God. They've all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. And you go, man, is that me? Am I accounted as one who does not follow and pursue God? Am I, am I being called a sinner? And the answer is yes. One who transgresses the law of God. One who does not pursue God. And, you, and that's discouraging. But notice what it says here about um, verse 5. It says in verse 5, it says, They are in great terror, for God is with the generation of the righteous. In the midst of God defending the poor, God defending those who are defenseless, he says in verse 5 of Psalm 14, he says, They, meaning those who have no knowledge, who are evildoers, who are fools, they are in great terror. A man who declares no God will have moments of terror and doubt in his life. Let me give you... Uh, an example. An example from uh, Spurgeon. He says this, um, Joseph Addison, he, he quotes Joseph Addison, an 18th century prose writer who is quoted by Spurgeon in the treasury of David. Addison had been on shipboard, had been on shipboard with a particularly vile person when the ship was overtaken by a gale, a strong wind, right? The passenger was the only one severely frightened, but he was so frightened that he went to the chaplain fell on his knees and confessed that he had been a denier of God and an atheist ever since he had come of age. So, so picture this, okay? You're in the 1700s, you're on ship, the wind rises, and you have an atheist on board, and the atheist goes to the chaplain, which by the way, there's a chaplain on board, which tells you it's, it's not today, right? He goes to the chaplain, and he says, I've been a denier of God my entire life, please forgive me, what do I need to do? Well, here's what happens. Because you see, in Psalm 14, verse 5, when someone thinks that their life is going to be taken, they become real religious really quickly. You know, there are no atheists in foxholes. They're all praying. Well, let me, let me go on. It, it soon got out on this ship, around the ship, that there was an atheist on the upper deck. And the common, and the common sailors who, said Addison, had never heard the word atheist before, at first supposed that it was some sort of rare fish. But when they learned that it was a man who denies God, they were frightened themselves and suggested, not quietly, that it would be a good deed to, ha to heave him overboard. However, the ship soon came near land, and when the penitent man saw that there was not going, he was not going to perish after all, he repudiated his conversion, begging the passengers not to say a word of what had happened to anyone, and went back to his openly wicked ways. Because when his life is threatened, he became in terror of what would happen, that he might be held accountable for his words, his actions, his thoughts. The story gets a little bit better. That part of the story alone would make my point, but there is more. After two days on shore, the man ran into one of the other passengers again, and the passenger reminded him of his newfound piety. The atheist denied it, and the argument got so fierce that it ended in a duel in which the atheist was run through with his opponent's sword. 
Addison said that at this point, he became as good a Christian as he was at sea. Till he found out that his wound was not mortal. That he was going to recover. And the moment that he recovered from his wound, he denied God again. And so as Addison says, Addison heard that heard of him that he had become what in those days we called a free thinker and was writing foolish books about religion. Brothers and sisters, I've seen this occur within the lives of other people that there's a momentary sense in which somebody thinks about their mortality and they have a moment of repentance. I remember speaking to a man who um, you know, really lived his life all about money, all about things. And I remember he, he had a heart attack and he had to have open heart surgery, whereas, where they literally, you know, essentially flayed him open. And I remember um, he came to me and said, the Lord has totally changed my heart. You know, okay, no pun intended. And I was like, this is great. And so for a while, he came to church. And for a while, he seemed like he was really, really um, sold out for Jesus. And then gradually, over time, he began to slide back to the point where he began to miss church. He began to, to not embrace Christ to the point where he was living his life the same way he had always lived it. And it wasn't until he had another heart episode where he was like, oh, I'm reminded of Jesus again. And that, brothers and sisters, I don't want you to, to flit and flutter back and forth because that's what the fool does. And yet... They are in great terror, for God is with the generation of the righteous. Again, the, those people who are fools who take advantage of the poor, you would shame the plans of the poor, but the Lord, but Yahweh is his refuge. Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion when the Lord restores the fortune of his people. Let Jacob rejoice. Let Israel be glad. So the question becomes, you know, if, if we are counted among the ungodly, if we are counted as those who are corrupt and abominable and do abominable things and, and with a lack of, you know, if we're sinners, right, what hope do we have? Who can stand? Matter of fact, if you, if you look at back at Psalm 14 and you just turn one page over to Psalm 15, it says, who can ascend to the hill of the Lord? I'll just read it. Who shall dwell in your holy hill? In verse 2, he who walks blamelessly and does what is right and speaks truth in his heart, who does not slander with his tongue and does no evil to his neighbor, nor takes up a reproach against his friend, in whose eyes a vile person is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord, who swears to his own hurt and does not change, who does not put out his money at interest and does not take a bribe against the innocent. He who does these things shall never be moved. The difficulty with that is you look at that list and you go, I can't keep it. So I need something else. Like, how, do, how does this happen? But in verse 7 of, of Psalm 14, it says, Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion. Meaning that someone would show up and that salvation would come upon those who are miserable sinners. And the beauty of the gospel message and the beauty of the great chapter that Martin Luther quotes as the greatest chapter is this. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified or declared righteous by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. That's what we see right in the middle of what he would call the greatest paragraph in all of Scripture is that we are sinners, but we are justified by his grace as a gift. 
and that this gift for you and for me is free, but it is costly because it costs the very life of the Son of God who bore upon himself the penalty for our sins, for all of our mistrust, for all of our unbelief, so that at the cross, at the cross, all of our sins are paid. I was at the, um, um, I was at the funeral um, on yesterday, and, and a lot of times my perspective of the church is a different perspective than what most people have, because I'm up here, right? <laughs> like I'm up here. But yesterday, as I'm sitting there in the back, um, you know, I was like all the way in the back, yeah, kind of like where Bill is now, right? Where all the sinners seat. Oh, we're all the sinners, you know, they, they get seated back there, right? And as I'm, and as I'm looking at, at, at the, the funeral, and Bill was preaching the funeral, and then I saw this cross behind us, and I go, what a beautiful image that we have, because it's at the foot of the cross where I am redeemed and reconciled to my Father in heaven. It's so good, because I am a wretched sinner and if I am a fool and I'm not worried about the accountability and I'll do horrible things, and yet by faith through the gift of God, I am reconciled to my Father. But not only forgiven and pardoned and justified, I am welcomed into the family of God because of this, because of the cross of Jesus Christ. It is so good, it is so good to ponder what Jesus has done for us. I'll close with the C.S. Lewis quote. C.S. Lewis says this, um, he says, a man can no more diminish God's glory by refusing to worship him than a lunatic can put out the sun by scribbling the word darkness on the walls of his cell. Brothers and sisters, might we just bask in the glory of God, in his creation, and in the salvation that we have in Jesus. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, we are so grateful for the way that you love us and care for us. And Father, as we come to your scripture, I pray, Lord, that you would work in us great faith Father, for those who have come and maybe don't think that there is a God, I pray, Lord, that you would reveal yourself to them within your word, but, Father, also within creation that sings of the majesty of the architecture that you have created. Father, I pray, Lord, for those who may not believe that you would take out their heart of stone and replace it with a heart of flesh. And, Father, for those of us who have struggled this week to believe Father, I pray, Lord, that you would give us a deep assurance of our faith. And that, Father, as we, as we hold a blade of grass in our hands, I pray, Lord, that we would sing your glory. As we hear the birds, that we would proclaim your name. Father, as we would see a beautiful sunset, Father, that we would see that you are amazing. Father, help all of our lives to be one of worship to you. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.